Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can find me on Twitter. My handle there is at Jen Frey and on Instagram at Professoressa Frey. You can also find the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, I am joined by Professor of Philosophy Thomas Hibbs, and we discuss Dostoevsky's justly famous novel, Crime and Punishment. We had settled on this great Russian novel well before everyone was so keen to cancel all things Russian in light of Putin's despicable actions in Ukraine. However, if you know anything about me or this podcast, you will know that I am interested in art insofar as it transcends the present, not insofar as it helps us to take sides in our present political battles. So with that unpleasant business aside, and with no apologies for my willingness to love and appreciate Russian art, while also having solidarity with our neighbors in Ukraine, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. This is episode 48 on crime and punishment with Thomas Hibbs. Thomas Hibbs is currently the J. Newton Razor Senior Professor of Philosophy at Baylor, where he is also Dean Emeritus, having served 16 years as Dean of the Honors College and Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Culture. He has a PhD from the University of Notre Dame and served as a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College. He was full professor and department chair of philosophy at Boston College and president of the University of Dallas. At Baylor, Hibbs has also served as director of Baylor in Washington, D.C. He works on lots of different areas of philosophy, especially Thomas Aquinas, virtue ethics, and aesthetics. And he's published a lot. Apparently, he's currently working on a book on Catholic aesthetics, which I really want to ask him about. But welcome to the podcast, Professor Hibbs. It's great to be with you. It's a real honor. Uh, I'm a fan of the podcast and uh, really glad to be a participant now. Oh, well, that <laughs> I'm so excited that you're a fan of the podcast, and I, I'm delighted to have you on as well. So what is this book on Catholic aesthetics that you're working on? So it's a, um, perhaps the easiest way to uh, explain it is that it's an attempt to engage critically and apply Jacques Maritain's aesthetic theory to some poets and some painters, and looking especially at his good friend Georges Rouault, but also there's a really interesting uh, mid-century poet, uh, William Everson, uh, who was a kind of Southern California beat nature poet, who then became a Catholic mm-hmm. and became mm-hmm. a, a monk uh, at the Dominican place in Oakland, St. Albert's, and wrote yeah. uh, wrote uh, some really remarkable religious poetry for about a decade. And then there's some other figures, but those are the two main figures. It's an attempt to take Maritain and, and see what remains valuable in his project and then do something that he really didn't do in great detail, which is to apply his theory uh, to 20th century art. Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. So you're talking about art and scholasticism, correct? Yes, yes. And then uh, and then especially the, the later book, Creative Intuition. Okay, so I haven't read that later book. Um, so I should read that later book? It's good? That's the one. It's, um, it's 
it's it's murkier as Maritan can sometimes be, but it's uh, it's where he really attempts to, in a sense, update the aesthetic theory to take into account 19th and 20th century uh, uh, accounts of beauty. So I I recently wrote about Maritan and uh, Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I was uh, doing this thing in D.C. with Jamie Smith. Uh, Mm -hmm. who is a philosopher and editor-in-chief of Image. And it was interesting because it was a group of people. It was one of these Templeton projects, so it was very interdisciplinary. Um, You know, there were like two philosophers there, but then there were also a bunch of working artists. So there was a pianist, there was a painter, there was um, just just all kinds of artists. And, And then Jamie, of course, and some social science people. And I was just prevent, I was basically presenting like this manifesto on art and truth. And it was like pretty much coming out of Maritan. And the reception was not as terrible as I expected it to be. (laughs) But once I brought beauty into it, that's when, so it was like art and truth. They were okay with that to a certain extent. I mean, there was a lot of pushback, but like the thing that really bothered them was when I brought in beauty. And then they were like, no, it has nothing to do with beauty. And I, I always find that so interesting. That later work that I mentioned, Creative Intuition, has uh, where where Maritain actually develops his account of uh, of generativity or creativity. That's the part that uh, artists have. Uh, I mean, Flannery O'Connor was obviously influenced, but Dana Joya, the poet, uh, Mako Fujimura, the contemporary painter, and even Seamus Haney has an essay, Sixth Sense, Seventh Heaven, where he uses Maritain's account in Creative Intuition to describe his own process of writing poetry. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that's one of the places which connects up. But yeah, beauty is a uh, can be a quite controversial notion amongst artists. Yeah, because, well, especially people who are really steeped in contemporary art mm-hmm. because they kind of know that it's ugly. <laughs> and they, you know, they're just very explicit. I mean, one of the painters there was very explicit that, you know, art as he practices it has nothing to do with beauty and it has everything to do with meaning, creating things that are meaningful or that we make meaning out of. And so I guess I just wonder if you think for a specifically Catholic aesthetics, beauty has to be essential. Well, I think it does, although I think there's a way in which one can take into account the modern circumstance. I mean, Maritain himself says both in Art and Scholasticism and later in Creative Intuition that, and and here he he comes close to what Flannery O'Connor says in one of her essays where she says that we can't look to modern artists for reassurance, right? What we're right. going to get from them is a limited revelation. We're not going to get the full vision of Dante, right, from mm-hmm. contemporary right. art because right. exactly. the circumstances are not, and uh, are not because we don't we don't live in Christendom. That's right, and yeah. uh, and Maritain actually takes someone like Baudelaire, who certainly wallowed in ugliness, mm-hmm. as a an example of a modern artist who could dwell in the hell of modern life and describe it accurately to us, so that we yearn for something more. Now I take it that both of those have to be there for Maritain, right? So. The, uh, the, the accurate description of the hells of modern civilization is something an artist ought to aim for. 
But in so doing, the artist ought to be naming those as disorders, right, and mm-hmm. not merely wallowing in them, so that it, right. so that the artist is at least indirectly pointing us to something that's greater and that is in fact beautiful. Right, 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 right. Okay, good. That's helpful. Just so that everybody gets as excited as I am. So in in September at the Catholic Imagination Conference, which I think is at UD, Dana, Joya, and I are going to do an episode of this podcast on Baudelaire. So that would be something. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited. So anyway, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about this. Anyway, it's a... um, we're we're not going to solve this issue uh, right now. But when 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 is your book coming out? Uh, it should be out next year. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm I'll be excited about it. You'll have to come back on the podcast when it comes out. We are here today to talk about Dostoevsky, specifically to talk about crime and punishment. Um, and I guess my first question is why you chose crime and punishment. So my listeners know that I let all of my guests choose their own book. So yeah, why Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment? So it's a text that I've loved for uh, for many years. I've taught it off and on. I'm in fact teaching it in a class that focuses on modern moral philosophy. And it's framed in a way as a debate between Nietzsche and, and Dostoevsky. And then we're reading Mill, Kant, Rousseau, uh, and looking at how themes from romanticism, from utilitarianism, from modern moral philosophy more generally, how nihilism figures in the thought of both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. Interestingly, they overlap in some ways in their criticisms of modern moral philosophy and then diverge, of course, in other ways. Uh, but we know that mm-hmm. we know that at least that uh, Nietzsche read Notes from Underground, which was the book I'm also teaching in this class that Dostoevsky wrote right before he wrote Crime and Punishment. And Crime and Punishment mm-hmm. is in some respects an expansion on the themes in Notes from Underground. And Nietzsche liked Notes from Underground. So there's some interesting parallels there. I, I also mm-hmm. think it's a really remarkable book in many ways. One of the ways it's remarkable is it, it's awfully difficult to write fiction that focuses on ideas, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Iris Murdoch is is one of the few great figures in the 20th century who pulls this off. But usually ideas don't translate well to drama. And, and Dostoevsky pulls this off, I think, especially well in Crime and Punishment, in part because he's embedded the ideas within a, what we might call a kind of odd murder mystery that, mm-hmm. uh, that is written in a way, it was, we know it was written in installments over a year's period and published in a, in a kind of public journal uh, in Russia. Uh, and it's almost like each episode ends with a new character appearing or some interesting dramatic twist that makes you want to go on to the next page, just as a murder mystery does. And yet embedded within that is this remarkable reflection on all the big ideas coming from the West into Russia. Uh, Most of those ideas coming from the West, Dostoevsky is deeply critical of. And it's in a way Dostoevsky's attempt to play out in the lives of the characters, especially in the life of Raskolnikov, the consequences of attempting to live out certain kinds of ideas, something he had toyed with 
in Notes from Underground and then develops in a more expansive and much more grippingly dramatic way in Crime and Punishment. So it's a great read, uh, a page turner, but it's also a book that is uh, with very rich characters and then big ideas. And so I love that combination uh, for my own reading, but especially for the teaching of undergraduates. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that he's a philosophical novelist? Or is that sort of misleading? I, I think he is. That's, in a way, what I was trying to say, that there's there are big ideas uh, being played out in the book. Sometimes in uh, in earlier, like Notes from Underground, and then in Brothers Karamazov, in much greater detail, if you think of the lengthy disquisition yeah. of Ivan uh, in The Grand Inquisitor, right? right? There are places right. where the ideas get played out in great detail. In Crime and Punishment, it's more in the course of conversations that these debates mm-hmm. happen. But then we see the ideas played out in lives. And that's that's where Dostoevsky's genius. I would say, you know, if we look to 20th century authors, I mean, I think that Walker Percy's Lancelot, which has a lot in common with Crime and Punishment, it's, it's a quest for evil, is a novel of ideas that works well dramatically. And mm-hmm. Dostoevsky, I think, pulls this off uh, remarkably well in Crime and Punishment. Yeah. So one question is, like, again, in thinking about how his philosophical or theological commitments relate to the actual drama of the story. So the way the action of the story unfolds, like why a murder mystery? Because it's not an accident, right? So why, I mean, if we're going to call it a murder mystery or or whatever, a crime drama, maybe a crime thriller, because um, in because in some sense it's not really a mystery. Like we know who the killer is. Uh, this isn't like Sherlock Holmes. We know who the killer is because the whole narrative is mostly told from the perspective of the killer, which of course is this amazing character Raskolnikov. But why why the thriller, the the crime thriller? And you're right. It's an odd. Um, it, it's a it's a murder mystery in the way Macbeth is a murder mystery, right? Where we know right. who the killer is at the outset. And then we're, in effect, seeing whether the killer is going to be caught is mm-hmm. one of the mysteries here. And then what will be the impact on the soul of the killer of having perpetrated the crime, right? So there's an investigation of the impact of that. And I think also largely here, the mystery is Raskolnikov's own mystery, right? He's he's perplexed after he commits the murder as to what his motivations were. And there are a number of them that are listed. And in a sense, it's it could be seen as Raskolnikov's quest for a kind of self-knowledge about what led him to c- commit the murder and what the implications of the murder are for him and for these wider theories. So why murder? Well, Murder is the ultimate test case for justice, right? It's the, if, if murder is, if the killing of the innocent is licit, then there seems to be no basis for justice. There seems to be no basis for judgment of conscience. And Dostoevsky sees implicit in the theories that are circulating in Russia at the time Some of these are versions of the Nietzsche and Superman theory, which Raskolnikov writes an article about uh, that uh, comically he isn't even aware has been published and finds out from the police detective who is uh, interviewing him at a certain point. 
And then there is a not just the um, the the Superman uh, theory, but also a certain kind of utilitarianism that would right. argue that the elimination of non-productive elements in society can be to the betterment of the whole of society. And so elimination, that is murder, might be justified if good consequences for the whole of society ensue from that act. So mm -hmm. it, it's in a way a, a testing out of, uh, of these theories that are circulating, which Dostoevsky finds toxic for individual souls and for the social order. And it's, it's a testing out personally for Raskolnikov himself as to whether he is one of these supermen or not, right? right? He's in a way testing his own status and testing out his own theory. Right, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the themes in the novel, it seems to me, is kind of the gap between theory or theorizing about these things and the actual like muck and mass of human life and sort of living your theory, which of course is a notorious problem for utilitarians in particular. Um, and we can talk about why that might be once we once we get to it. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm teaching, I'm teaching a class right now called Virtues, Acts, and Consequences. And it's ostensibly supposed to be a class that teaches the big three in normative ethics, you know, virtue theory, deontology, and consequentialism. And I've been reading, I've been rereading Crime and Punishment as I'm teaching JCC Smart <laughs> on consequentialism. And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing we should do at some point is actually talk, tell our listeners what utilitarianism slash consequentialism is. But before that, I guess it would probably be good to talk about the main characters of this novel first, you know. Especially our, especially our poor benighted Raskolnikov is the main character. Yeah. So, uh, and there there aren't quite as many characters uh, in this Russian novel as there are in some, but but there are a, a central set and then a, a bunch of of minor characters who end up playing significant roles in certain segments of the novel. But Raskolnikov is a, an impoverished uh, student, a translator, an author. Uh, who's living in a a little almost coffin-like room, as it's described at a certain point, without money, without really prospect. Uh, he also seems to be in a kind of depressed mania uh, at the mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, and uh, St. Petersburg, where this is taking place, is described as, uh, you might say, as hot as hell. Right, it's a, uh, it's a, it's it, there's an inferno-like atmosphere, and and he's living in an area that's full of squalor, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's unclean, it's cramped, and you get this sense of uh, deep oppressive atmosphere in the opening, and mm -hmm. Raskolnikov has uh, his father's dead, but his mother and sister we learned very early in the novel are coming to visit him. He has been disconnected from them in a way. He has few friends. Uh, one of them, Razumakin, whose name means reason, is a very important character who will end up marrying his sister, Dunya. Uh, and, but he's an isolated soul, and he's trapped in uh, his own 
theories, and this theory on which he has published an article has to do with the notion of the Superman. The example would be a Napoleon. Are there certain kinds of great souls who stand, in Nietzsche's words, beyond good and evil? And on that basis can make judgments to reshape the future of society and to eliminate those members of society who are unproductive. He also has an ongoing sort of tortured relationship with this pawnbroker uh, who who he goes to to try and get money and he's in a, he's in kind of debt with her. She's interestingly, she will be the woman whom he intends to murder. She's described in very unattractive terms, this right. this this primary uh, intended victim of Raskolnikov's crime. And Raskolnikov gives various justifications for killing the pawnbroker. Some of them have to do with utilitarianism. He also finds her physically repulsive and also oppressive to him because she keeps him kind of trapped in debts that he can't emerge from. And at the beginning, he's in a sense going back and forth between whether he will commit the crime uh, or not. And he's, he's in a sense excited to do the crime and then has this famous dream of the beating of an innocent horse and wakes from this dream and sees this dream of the beating of an innocent horse. He calls it a loathsome dream, which is what he had described his ideas earlier of killing the pawnbroker as, a loathsome dream. So he's at once excited and repulsed by this idea of murder. And after he has the dream, it seems that he's given up for the moment on the idea of killing the pawnbroker. Then he's out in public. He also goes back and forth between wanting to be completely isolated and wanting to immerse himself in society. And he overhears some young people talking about the pawnbroker and how her sister will be out of the house at a certain time. And Raskolnikov takes this as a kind of fatalistic prophecy. Uh, He immediately assumes that he will commit the murder, and the description is that he must commit the murder now, that he feels himself predetermined to commit the murder. He does go, and by the end of part one, commits the murder. The big surprise in the course of committing this murder is that Lizaveta comes home early, and he ends up killing her as well. She will end up being described as an innocent and in a sense, holy person. So it's in a sense, this complication uh, throws a wrench in Raskolnikov's own theory that this despicable pawnbroker should be the one to be killed because as as a side effect of that, he has to kill what he takes to be a genuinely innocent person. It also complicates things because he thinks in advance that rationally he's in control of everything. And because he's rationally in control, there will be no unanticipated consequences and no moral complications after the fact. We know as the early part of the novel unravels that his soul unravels having committed the murder and he's lost complete control of his own. He goes, as the early Coen Brothers film puts it, he goes blood simple when he commits the murder. Right, this notion right. that the criminal, in the moment of committing the heinous act, loses control of his reason and therefore fails in the commission of the perfect crime. 
Yeah. So it's like, you know, in the murder, it's one of the, which is so, <laughs> it's, it's strange because it's like so repulsive and compelling, like this part of the novel at the same time. But yeah, it's the first time that his theory, you know, really meets hard reality and it doesn't quite match up. You know, it's sort of like the first real clash there. But just to return to the question of of his motives specifically, he kind of, again, it's not clear that he understands his own motives because he goes back and forth between various motives. And maybe the whole thing's overdetermined. Maybe he has all of these motives. And it wasn't any one of them that, you know, finally did it. Or maybe it was this sign that he thought he saw that that finally moved him, like, in an efficient causal sense. But, you know, on the one hand, he's like, well, I need money. And one reason why he needs money is because he got this long letter from his mother that really upset him. And basically, he thinks that his sister is, like, prostituting herself in the sense of she's marrying a guy for money that she doesn't love and who seems kind of like a jerk. And she's doing it for his sake, right? It's this sacrificial act for his sake. And the mother and the letter is like, you know, all of our hopes are in you and we're doing this all for you. And, you know, and then he's looking at himself and he's like, I'm a, I'm a loser. (laughs) This is terrible. So I think he feels anger and guilt and all this stuff. And so he's like, I just need money so that my sister doesn't have to do this. And so that I can be the one that protects the women in my family who, you know, in the society needs some man to protect them. But then there's the other aspect of it, which is sort of, I don't know, trying to live out what is maybe a miseducation, you know, where he has these fanciful ideas, like maybe I'm a Napoleon, maybe I'm an Ubermensch, maybe I... I'm not actually bound to the laws like ordinary people. I am like above, you know, I don't need to be obedient to the law, possibly. And then there's like also this utilitarian thing. And that's the idea that this pawnbroker, he describes her as a louse repeatedly. Like she's like, she's not even really human. And so she's completely expendable and it would be better right? It would be better on the whole um, if she didn't exist. So it's kind of like, it's really unclear <laughs> which one of these things is is really driving him. But of course, what ends up happening after he kills these women, one, I mean, he kills both of them intentionally, but like one he kills in a kind of premeditated way and the other he kills and that's just like in the moment, oh my gosh, you're here kind of way. I have to get rid of you. And he's not, you know, he he obviously regrets the second murder in a way that he doesn't necessarily regret the first murder. But also like the murder doesn't really go off well. Like he almost gets caught. He leaves things a mess. <laughs> like, um, and he leaves behind an enormous amount of money. Yeah, he doesn't even, right. Like he doesn't even like accomplish the thing that he thought he was accomplishing with the murder. So the whole thing was in some sense like a failure. And then the rest of the novel is kind of like, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously I'm interested in what you think, but it seems sort of like he's living out the wages of sin, right? Which are both internal and psychological. And he has a lot of guilt, which he 
isn't really able necessarily to name to himself as guilt, but is like clearly guilt. He has a bad conscience. It manifests itself in a thousand different ways. But then externally, like he just becomes more and more isolated from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are just all these negative and, and paranoid too. He just becomes incredibly paranoid. And yeah, so so the rest of the novel is sort of like playing it out. And, and you know, the question of self-knowledge, like we can return to that at the end of the discussion. But like, does he come to self-knowledge? Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a huge, a huge question. Right. Um, in thinking about this novel. Yeah, I think um, that's right. I think he's he's at once kind of simultaneously seeking it and avoiding it. Right. And. You know, his character right afterward is, is right after the murder is really interesting because he's still capable of acts of generosity, right? He'll give money away to Marmeladoff when he's injured or to pay for a funeral. And then he sometimes later regrets these, these spontaneous acts of generosity. But we also know that he had been engaged to a very sickly young woman, his landlady's daughter, who ended up dying and was, in a sense, sacrificing himself for the sake of this sickly young woman. And the the really interesting thing about the language that's used there is he's described as overcoming all obstacles in the pursuit of this marriage of this young woman who is so sickly and unattractive that no one else would want to do this. And of course, overcoming all obstacles is in a sense what he does in the murder. So he's mm-hmm. he's torn between these excessive spontaneous acts of generosity and self-sacrifice, at least prior to being infected by the theory, and then these self-absorbed, narcissistic, violent, acts of destruction and of wanting to separate himself off from everyone else. The other thing dramatically that Dostoevsky really does brilliantly is that he keeps, as soon as as, as Raskolnikov thinks that he's attained equilibrium and recovered his strength, you always know that Raskolnikov is going to faint in the next scene, right? So he's at the police station. He thinks he has everything under control. Then he hears someone talking about the murder. He faints. After Marmeladov is injured and he's covered in Marmeladov's blood, he is renewed in spirit and thinks he can get away with everything. He goes back to his apartment to find his mother and sister there, and their presence makes him faint. So every time he asserts his own stamina, his own strength, he he immediately confirms for us how weak he is, and how incapable of actually being in control of his life. There's also this wonderful line that the narrator uses, because he goes in and out of a kind of comatose state, right? After the murder, where he sleeps for days, people are coming in and out of his apartment. And there's one one point where the narrator says, he was constantly remembering that he had forgotten something that he must not forget. And this, even this kind of loss of his own capacity to reason and remember is an indication that in this attempt to assert his own power, what he does is to reduce himself to a state of utter weakness and passivity and dependence on others. 
Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's going on is he's not able to hide his guilt. Right. Right. Like his guilt (laughs) doesn't remain this merely interior thing. Um, it, it just keeps coming out, um, in response to things that to other people who are innocent of the truth of the matter would be, would be neither here nor there. It would just be totally neutral, but for someone with a guilty conscience, um, provoke anger or anxiety or paranoia or some kind of negative emotion precisely because they know, I mean, he knows on some level that he's guilty despite all of his attempts to justify what he does to himself. I don't think he ever manages to convince himself that what he did was fine. No. And, you know, the one of the interesting themes here too, and this could take us into particularly the relationship with uh, with Sonia and Svidrigalov and Porphyry, who are the three main characters that he finds himself going back and forth among throughout the book. But he, he has also this desperate desire to confess. But the motivation yes. for confession varies quite a bit. Sometimes he seems to want to just be so exhausted that he just wants to be relieved of the burden of having to try to continue to hide his guilt, unsuccessfully, as you mentioned, but he's still attempting to hide it. At other points, when he's with Zemiotov in the tavern, and he gets right up near his face and he says, suppose I did it, right? He seems to want to taunt other people uh, with the idea that he might be the murderer. And he seems also to want, in a sense, which happens very dramatically when he goes back into the apartment where he had committed the murder, Right, he returns to the scene of the crime, as criminals often do. He wants, in a sense, through the confession, to relive the thrill of his own power, of his own violence. Right, and then, and then there are occasionally the inklings of a deeper kind of confession, where he might actually own up to his own guilt and then repent of it. But, mm-hmm. but there are ink, only inklings of that, I think. And the question is whether in that famous epilogue, he actually gets to the point where he fully owns up to it or not. But the, this theme of confession, which is also, by the way, a theme in Rousseau's works that, in a sense, Dostoevsky's mocking all these vain confessions, which are just ways of drawing attention to oneself, very different from Augustine's confessions. Uh, he is, in a way, through some of the confessions, just trying to draw attention to himself as potentially the type of person who could have committed such a heinous act. And he's looking for the shock in others' eyes. And at times, he's also hoping that those others might help relieve him of his guilt, although he's not sure on what terms he's willing to be relieved of the guilt. Yeah. So can I ask you to say more about Rousseau and this kind of false attention-seeking confession as opposed to real confession? Like, what what are Rousseau's views there? Well, I think on on Dostoevsky's reading, you know, Rousseau writes his own confessions, which are in a sense a, a rewriting of Augustine's confessions. But these are these are not, um, as Augustine's put it puts it in his own confessions. Right, a confession is accusation of self, praise of God. That's what Augustine mm-hmm. says his confessions are about. In Rousseau's, they're they're various in a sense various masks of self representation right, of self-presentation. I think of that wonderful line from uh, 
T.S. Eliot's early poem, J. Alfred Prufrock, where, who is a deeply vain and, and paralyzed person in, in his own self, but who lives, in a sense, cultivating images of himself in the eyes of others. He's constantly concerned about how he looks to others. I think Rousseau thinks that confession is really about how we present ourselves to others. And Prufrock says at one point, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Right, this sense that we're we're always putting on masks and presenting ourselves, and confession is perhaps the most dramatic way of doing that for Rousseau. Yeah. And, and Dostoevsky is, in a sense, mocking this as a kind of play acting that indicates how far Raskolnikov is from actual self-knowledge, to go back to that topic, and also how mm-hmm. far he is from actually being capable of having the courage of acknowledging what he's done and owning up to his guilt and repenting of it. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that contrast because, you know, the the real confessions, Augustine's confessions, is about a search for God, which is about the search for self-knowledge. And the whole thing is like a kind of prayer. It really, I, it really irritates me when people say things like the confessions is autobiography or it's memoir. And I'm like, did you read it? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's it's not that. Precisely because, you know, the, the whole premise of memoir is that like your life is so interesting and that, that people are gonna, you know, learn something. And and I just think that's not what Augustine is setting aside whatever his motives were. It's just not, it's not how the book strikes you. And yeah, because it, it all kind of just has this form of prayer and and praise, right? It's also the case for Augustine, what's crucial in this is in our own limited human way to begin to see our own lives from the perspective of divine providence. So there's that wonderful passage in the middle of book five, right, where Augustine leaves North Africa to go to Rome. And addressing God, he says, I left North Africa to go to Rome because my students were unruly and wouldn't pay their bills, right? And so mm-hmm. he goes to Rome because he thinks he might find better students or other kinds of work. And he says, you led me to Rome to meet Ambrose, to hear Ambrose right. preach, right? So right. there's that shift where he, looking back, can see the hand of God was at work, where Skolnikov never really has that. But he has characters around him, Sonia in certain ways, and very interestingly, the police detective Porphyry, who are actually trying to supply and operate in his life in a kind of providential way, trying to get him to see that a certain kind of suffering of repentance would be healthy for his soul and lead him back to the path of health and the path of life. But that would be to see his life from a providential perspective, where even this evil, good can come out of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, Sonia sees that possibility. Porphyry sees that possibility. Uh, It's a question whether Raskolnikov ever does see it. Right, right. I think, right. Okay. So let's talk about those other characters. And let's start with, let's start with Porphyry. You know, Porphyry is this, I don't know, he's like a detective, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what his official title is, but he, you know, he, he's like investigating this, this crime, this murder, or this double murder. And so he wants all of the, um, all of the people who were like pawning items 
with this woman to come in and talk to him. And so that's how Raskolnikov, you know, goes into the police station to see him. And they have like a very interesting exchange. I mean, this, this I think is the point in the novel where we learn that Raskolnikov had published like a theory (laughs) about the Ubermensch. Do you want to talk about this scene? Yeah, it's a great scene. And, you know, just by way of background, some of the, uh, some members of your audience who are closer to my age than yours, Jen, might remember this TV character, Columbo, uh, who, who is- My daughter loves Columbo. Oh, wow, okay. She's so, 14. So there's a there's the return of Columbo, which is great. But that started out, I think, in the early 60s as a Broadway play character. And the, uh, the two guys who wrote the play based that character on Porphyry in, uh, oh, really? in Crime and Punishment. And so he's this seemingly befuddled- uh, not on top of things, detective who's uh, who's mumbling and but whose designs are really to throw people off balance and mm-hmm. to and to to kind of gradually entrap the criminal so that he confesses. Mm-hmm. And those shows are also structured in the same way as this, uh, as the novel, where they begin with the murder. Everybody knows who committed the murder, and the question here is, how do you catch the murderer? In this case, the the first interview of a number of conversations that um, Raskolnikov will have with Porphyry, Porphyry mentions to Raskolnikov that the Coen brothers could do a great comic movie of this novel, I think, because Raskolnikov's own delusions are frequently comic. And one of the moments is when Porphyry says to him, I read this article that you wrote, and Raskolnikov's like, uh, that's in print? Where did that where did that appear? He doesn't mm-hmm. even know that his mm-hmm. article is in print. And of course, because he's read the article and because he knows that Raskolnikov had a connection to the pawnbroker, he's immediately wondering whether Raskolnikov is guilty and very quickly comes to think that Raskolnikov is the perpetrator of the crime. But they have this conversation where Porphyry starts to ask him, when you were writing this article, did you maybe think of yourself as a Napoleon? Did you maybe think you were a person who could Mm -hmm. step over conventional morality and act uh, violently for the sake of future good? And Raskolnikov's getting very nervous. And and then he, the, the other part of that early conversation is that he, he asks Raskolnikov, it's sort of a, a confession of faith. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the afterlife? Right. Do you believe in the resurrection of Lazarus? And Raskolnikov says yes. And then Porphyry says, literally? And Raskolnikov says yes. So it's interesting that he, he doesn't just, Porphyry doesn't just examine the theory. He brings in the scriptures. He brings in the gospel message of resurrection to ask Raskolnikov whether in the depths of his soul, he knows he's been raised as a Christian, whether he still believes these things. And then the the real hard point here for Raskolnikov is when Porphyry says, isn't it the case that everybody in Russia today thinks of him or herself as a Napoleon? Isn't this just Mm -hmm. a common belief that we all think we're superstars or supermen and women who can make up our own morality? And that's, of course, deeply demoralizing for Raskolnikov because Raskolnikov thinks he's the only one around who knows this theory and he's the only one around who can live in accord with it. And yet Porphyry, and this is a great 
kind of window on 19th and 20th century civilization, right? It's no longer just these elite philosophers who believe in moral relativism and the ability for each of us to create our own moral universe. It's everybody. This has been democratized. Right. And so that's that, right. that in a sense, undermines Raskolnikov's pretensions of superiority. If this is a theory that's already circulating in the popular mind anyhow. So Porphyry completely, repeatedly ties him up in knots. And just when he thinks Raskolnikov that he's going to come out and arrest him or accuse him, Porphyry backs off and lets Raskolnikov continue to torture himself. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are there are subsequent conversations where we actually and I think we have reason to think this is accurate, that Porphyry has actually come to have a kind of compassion for Raskolnikov, that mm -hmm. he 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 knows he's guilty. He may or may not have the evidence to convict him, but he knows that Raskolnikov is not going to be able to live with this crime. He's also got theories of criminality that are really interesting, that, mm -hmm. that are a balance between the kind of view that was becoming common at the time, that crime is completely the result of the environment, that there is no free will. And Razumikin pushes back against that, and Porphyry says, well, there is something to the environment. It plays a role, right? It's a mix in criminality between free choice and the environment, at least for many people. Mm -hmm. In this case, the environment is partly his poverty, his need to help his mother and sister. It's also these toxic ideas in the environment that have infected Raskolnikov's soul. And so Porphyry plays the role of a kind of father confessor, potentially, for Raskolnikov. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, well, maybe, maybe we should, sorry, there's so many things I want to say, but I'm also mindful of the time. So, Maybe we should get to these other two main characters, right? There's Svedrigailov and there's Sonia. Or you can take either one in turn. So these three characters, Porphyry is the kind of father confessor who's attempting to move Raskolnikov to a confession, and he hopes to a kind of repentance as well. Raskolnikov's fate seems torn between Sonia, this deeply self-sacrificing character who is has actually become a prostitute to provide money for her impoverished family, but who seems, in a sense, untouched by her prostitution. That is, her will is still ordered to God. She becomes the person that Raskolnikov keeps returning to. The very interesting point about her is not just that she, in a sense, represents self Christian self-sacrifice, but she was also friends with Lizaveta right? The sister of the pawnbroker whom Raskolnikov did not intend in advance to murder, but ends up murdering. And right. she's not just her friend, but they have exchanged crosses. And she has Lizaveta's Bible, right? So Raskolnikov at one point asks about the exchange of crosses, right? So she stands in a way to Raskolnikov in the place of the victim, Right, she's Lizaveta, risen from the dead, in a sense, to confront Raskolnikov's conscience because she has taken on the burdens of Lizaveta. And then Raskolnikov keeps going back. At one point, he says to her, Do you have the do you have the gospels? Go, go to the gospels, go to the passage of the raising of Lazarus. 
and you have this great scene before a candle of the murderer and the harlot, as our translation describes it, and the holy book. Mm-hmm. And Sonia reads in this deeply impassioned way, as if the purpose of her entire existence is invested in the literal truth of Christ's ability to raise from the dead. And Raskolnikov, and then they sit there silently for about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And Raskolnikov is deeply moved by this, but then he becomes cynical. He eventually will confess to Sonia. And her right. first, she's got a kind of twofold reaction, which is interesting. We probably don't have time to go into this. Interesting for debates and virtue ethics. But you, you killed an innocent person, but also what have you done to yourself? Right? right. This notion that vice is, in a sense, its own punishment. So she, on the one hand, represents a very painful possibility for Raskolnikov of having to humiliate and humble himself. His theory was false. He did this all out of vainglory. He does say at one point to her, I've been lying for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Even to himself. And she brings him as close as he comes to recognizing the truth about himself. Meanwhile, when he's not with Porphyry, He's going to this character, Svidrigalov, who's been connected to Raskolnikov's sister and is a deeply problematic character who may have poisoned his wife, who has mm-hmm. a penchant for sexual relationships with young girls, right? Who is... Yeah, he's creepy. Who is creepy and a nihilist, right? He says to Raskolnikov at one point, you are still connected to civilization and humanity, meaning you haven't gone as far down the direction of nihilism as I have. But he scandalizes Raskolnikov, the murderer, right? His his passion for girls, for young girls, scandalizes Raskolnikov. At one point, he describes the afterlife as a small room with spiders, and Raskolnikov feels chills what does this indicate about Raskolnikov? It indicates what Raskolnikov could become, but is not yet. That is, Raskolnikov is not a full-blooded nihilist yet. He still retains some of the instincts of humanity and some of the lingering instincts of his own dilapidated faith. And so Raskolnikov spends the novel going between Sonia and Svidrigalov and then Svidrigalov eventually, out of his the, his own sense of his purposelessness of life, when Dunya Raskolnikov's sister finally fully rejects him, he commits suicide. And right. it's as if Raskolnikov sees, if I continue down this path, that's where I'm going to end up. I have to go back right. to Sonia, who then pushes him back to the police station to confess, which he does, but out of a sense of exhaustion in one way and out of a sense of fear that he could become Svidrigalov, and he's not willing to go fully down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm i really interested why, so I'm very interested in this character of Sonia, and, and, and just the fact that he makes her a prostitute. You know, she's kind of this hooker with a heart of gold figure where she, um, which is a bit of a trope, but still. Yes, yes indeed. Um, it's like, why... Why a prostitute? You know, why is it a, you know, impoverished, sort of forgotten 
prostitute who is very religious, right? Who is, and not in a, not in an unserious way. Um, she is in some sense a good Christian woman. So why, so why, why a prostitute? Like, what do you think Dostoevsky is trying to say there? One of the tropes that Dostoevsky is playing off of here, that he plays off of also in Notes from Underground, is this, this 20 years earlier, the, the romanticism that was dominant in Russia, which Dostoevsky sees eventually giving way to utilitarianism and nihilism. The romanticism had as one of its central tropes the character of the noble male who rescues a prostitute from destitution. Mm. Right, and so the character knows from underground very comically tries to do this in the course of that story, and ends up getting it reversed on him, where the prostitute ends up being the one who ends up being sympathetic to him. He can't, he can't take oh, this he, in his in his vanity that he would be subservient to a prostitute. So some of what's going on is Dostoevsky turning on its head this trope from Russian Romanticism about the male. Who, who makes a woman, right? And this is, this is what uh, Raskolnikov sees in his sister Dunya's engagement to Luzin, that she, as you said earlier, she's prostituting herself to this wealthy man in order to rescue the family. And Luzin, as a character, wants women who are dependent upon him, right? So this trope of the saving of the, the romantic, generous male saving of the prostitute from her destitution and wayward paths, Dostoevsky's turning that upside down, right? So it, yeah. it's the prostitute who ends up saving Raskolnikov. He has to, in a sense, humble himself as he does explicitly by kneeling in front of her, going down to her feet in the epilogue of the novel. He has to humble himself before this prostitute in order for his redemption to take place. So some of it is a, a historical context that we've lost. And so that, that I think, tempers the worry we might have as readers about this trope of the, the holy prostitute, right, who embodies the yeah. Magdalene and the Madonna, although that's still mm -hmm. there and, and problematic in some ways. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. Thank you. That's, that's really enormously helpful. I mean, so... At, <laughs> In almost every scene with Sonia, the, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Christ comes up. And so she's clearly, she's clearly pointing, right? I mean, in some sense, in some sense, Sonia saves him, but only by pointing to something outside of herself, right? It's not in the one case, yeah, in the one case to scripture and the possibility of of new life in Christ, of resurrection, and then, um, you know, also in pointing to where his real happiness is, right? Which is not at all where he's thinking that it is. And he confesses to her, right? But it's a very weird confession. And I just wonder what you what what you make of his confession, and then also his eventual. So there are two confessions, right? There's his confession to Sonia, and then there's his confession, really at the end of the novel, just before the epilogue, to, I guess it's Porphyry, or it's somebody in the police station. I mean, he, he's turning himself in. Yeah, I just wonder if you, I don't know, if you have thoughts about those two scenes and, yeah. and how so, they and might I, be mutually illuminating. Yeah, another point to make about her 
is just to reiterate what I said earlier is that she's the stand-in for his victim. So the so in a sense the the word of God comes to Raskolnikov from the Bible that Lizaveta owned, right? And Sonia's a stand-in for the victim who at once accuses him, but also offers the suggestion, the path of repentance and forgiveness. Yeah, I think. Um, you know, he's he's deeply torn in that scene where he confesses to her. And even after he does it, his, his pride reasserts itself, right? He doesn't immediately want to go to the police station then. And it's only after he learns about Svidrigalov and then is followed by what's become his conscience, Sonia. But it's a conscience mm-hmm. that he hasn't fully developed in himself because he needs her there. Uh, to to keep following him, so it it's a confession. And again, he's he's self dramatic, he's self dramatizing in that confession, right? It's as if he wants to present himself still, even before Sony at that moment, as a great souled superior human being who committed this murder, right? Mm-hmm. So he's still looking for even as he confesses, he's still looking for some sort of affirmation of his superiority. And of course, she'll have nothing of that. She knows that right. this is this is self-justifying delusion that he's suffering from. The moment that really matters there is the one I already mentioned where he says to her, no, that's a lie, and I've been lying for a long time. Right? His recognition in that moment, which is not that he knows what he ought to do, but at least he recognizes that he's been lying to everyone else and to himself in his theory, right. in his justification of the murder, in the way he's been dealing with everyone. His life is just riddled with lies, and the question is whether he can make his way back to the truth. So there's the confession at the police station, and then there's, in a sense, the confession after he's imprisoned and she visits him in jail, and he has a kind of a kind of vision of the the uh, the old plains of the Holy Land and Abraham, and uh-huh. and then he, in a sense relinquishes his own will. There's this this line that comes up a couple times. Instead of dialectic, there was life, right? So it's as if he gives up this internal rational battle of theory. And, and Porphyry had actually suggested, give up dialectic and submit yourself to life and submit yourself to the suffering that is yours. And in a sense, by embracing Sonia's path, he is embracing suffering at that point. It's, it's very quick at the end. It's hard. It's easy to be dubious about whether we think there's actually been a conversion of any deep sort in Raskolnikov. Dostoevsky says this is the beginning of another story, right? The story of the redemption of a soul. But the conversion happens so quickly, and because it does seem to be, again, a kind of exhaustion of the thing that had preoccupied him and then simply giving himself to something else, the, the narrative has a kind of gap in there, right? Because mm-hmm. he does simply give up rational dialectics and submit himself to life. What you'd like to hear is him telling his own story at that point in the way Augustine does. I was here and this is how I got here, right? That mm-hmm. So the, the narrative has a kind of gap there that I think we find unsatisfying in Raskolnikov's case, and to go back to Augustine's confessions in a way we find deeply satisfying 
in Augusta mm. because that yeah, that but- that narrative transition is is missing. Go ahead. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's not the job of the artist to make us feel satisfied. And I think it's enough that it reminds me, and this is not surprising, but it does remind me of Flannery O'Connor and the way that she tends to end her stories. And she was very influenced by Dostoevsky. She loved him. You know, because if if you look at the action of Grace and Flannery's fiction, uh, but especially her short stories, you know, grace happens in a flash to people who definitely don't deserve it. And I think a lot of people, once you point out that, no, the story isn't, like in some sense, the story has a happy ending, right? But it also is just left totally open-ended, right? So if you think of like a good man is hard to find or the enduring chill, it's like all that you know is that the Holy Spirit is coming to this man. You don't know it, it. You don't know anything other than that at the end of the enduring chill. All you know at the end of a good man is hard to find is that, you know, the misfit is no longer taking pleasure in this meanness, right? And he has, you know, he has in a way been changed by what has happened. And the grandmother has somehow inexplicably been redeemed. But, like, you don't know. You don't know if the misfit stops killing people. You're kind of (laughs) hopeful. And I feel the same way with Raskolnikov. Like, you don't know what – you don't know if this is going to stick. But that's, like, how it is with Grace. I mean, you just don't know, in part because you got to – you know, a soul has to persevere until the end. But – but it's also because, like, we are free, actually, <laughs> and we are ref- we are free to reject the love that has gratuitously been given to us. And so, yeah, it's not clear. It's not clear for Raskolnikov, but to be frank, I think it's not clear for anyone. Yeah, that that's a good point. The other thing I'd say is that, I mean, I was trying to get the give an account of why I think it is that so many people find the epilogue unsatisfying. The the deeper response to that dissatisfaction with the epilogue, it seems to me, and, and we don't have time to go into this, we've hinted at it in some ways, but the, the, the logic that's built into this dialectic between Sonia Svidrigalov and Porphyry, I think mm-hmm. there you can actually find, particularly in Porphyry, you can find the the kind of rationale for where Raskolnikov ends up in a way that Raskolnikov can't at that moment articulate for himself, right? So you can find in, first of all, in the the contrast between Sonia and Svidrigalov, but especially in Porphyry, who gives in other conversations with Raskolnikov a a pretty sophisticated account of human nature and, and of justice and of mercy for perpetrators, that I think is is actually, if you were looking for a kind of theoretical account of why Raskolnikov ends up where he does and how that makes sense, I, I would look at Porphyry's account, which is usually neglected. People talk about Sonia, they talk about Svidrigalov, they don't talk a lot about Porphyry. And I think his account of, of human nature, of sin, of justice, and of redemption is what we're seeing in a way played out in Raskolnikov's life. And one of the, one of the reasons that we don't get Raskolnikov's narrative is that he's incapable of giving it. He his own 
account of his own life hasn't developed fully enough to give that retrospective account that we find in the confessions. Maybe if we meet him five years down the road, he can give that account. Or maybe, as you suggest, since he's free, he's relapsed, right? We don't know what's going to happen. But at that moment, he's not capable of giving that account. And for him to start giving it at that moment, rather than simply subordinate himself to the grace that's in his presence, would be inappropriate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, in the epilogue, like in the end, he sees a sign, just like he saw a sign in the Haymarket. But it seems to be more like, you know, a real sign. I mean, but one thing that, one thing I've never understood is why he says to Porphyry in that initial exchange that he does believe in the resurrection of Lazarus and he does believe in, I mean, like, why does he, is he just lying? Is that just another lie? Is is he trying to like throw him off the scent? Like what? I've never understood that. Yeah, I think those are all possibilities, right? That's early. And we don't we don't yet, even as readers, have a good sense of of what his faith has been like. We do know that his mother is worried, right? That he's been raised as an, an uh, uh, in the Russian Orthodox faith, and she's worried that he's fallen prey to this fashionable new unbelief, right? And and in that response to Porphyry. Maybe he's responding as he would have as a child to a test about what he believes, what his confession of faith is. Maybe he's lying to him. Maybe there is this lingering desire, at least, to believe. And it, it is very interesting, right, that when he tells Sonia to read from Scripture, he says, find the resurrection of Lazarus, right? So it's as if the seed has been planted by that question from Porphyry. And it's as if Raskolnikov is going back and, in a sense, hoping to discover something in that gospel story that he might actually believe in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I like about the action of this story is that the extent to which Raskolnikov does come to self-knowledge, it is through other people primarily, <laughs> you know, and and also through God's grace. Um and I mean, so maybe just a just a question to kind of close it out, you know. So there is this question in the end, and I just think it's left. I think it's left unsettled, and I and I think that's fine. But there is this question at the end about, well, is, has he really broken through these theories so that he can actually live like a human being? And you know, to what extent is that? To what extent is his ability to do that? depend upon, you know, his revelation or his acknowledgement that that he didn't just commit a crime, but he sinned? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do think that he, um, that it's what Porphyry says to him and what the narrator says at the end, in place of dialectic, there is life. I mean, that to go back to the opening of our conversation, this is really what Dostoevsky's worried about with these theories, right? Which is that, as he, he puts a number of cases, we think, we act as if we ought to live lives out of books, right? Out of mm-hmm. theories. And instead of giving ourselves to the immediacy of human life and those around us and the, the possible encounter with the presence of God, we're trapped in these abstractions, and the abstractions end up being a, an unending dialectic where you can never... So if you ask, is he refuting Nietzsche here? I think 
I think what, what Dostoevsky is going to say is there really isn't a refutation possible of this, right, on the theoretical mm. level. But if mm. you look at how this plays out in life and you start within life, you'll see that this damages everyone and it damages the entire society, that it is toxic mm-hmm. and, and that it and that it involves deep injustice, right? So you'll you'll in a way by by starting with life rather than theory, you'll come to the right conclusion. But Raskolnikov has been so trapped in theory that he does have to give up dialectic and live. And he has to live with fellow prisoners and with Sonia. And I, I think it's right to say that he does have to begin to live with recognizing his own guilt. Because mm-hmm. to for him to submit himself to Sonia is not for him to submit himself to the once prostitute redemptive female. It's to mm-hmm. submit himself to what Sonia has been trying to teach him about himself, mm-hmm. which right. is that he, yeah. he has killed the innocent and thereby also killed his own soul. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Dostoevsky's often talked about as a philosophical novelist. I mean, we talked about that at the beginning of our conversation. But in some sense, I, I, I just wonder if Dostoevsky's novels are also pointing to the limits of philosophy. And this is something that I am kind of obsessed with <laughs> because, you know, I found myself maybe a little bit too late running up against the limits of philosophy, in particular, the limits of moral philosophy. And, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting that this conversation about theorizing is being had by two moral theorists in a sense. You know, it kind of raises the question about whether or not we're part of the problem. You know, if if these poor students are coming into our classes and we're just giving them theories, you know, well, here's what the here's what the Kantian says, and here's what the utilitarian says, and here's what Nietzsche says. Now, good luck. <laughs> right. Um, we're somehow like harming them. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, one, one of the reasons I teach this class the way I do is that, I mean, as you know, the utilitarian and Kantian theories are, in a sense, an attempt to make moral philosophy scientific, right? To provide us with decision procedures. And, mm-hmm. and, and if we're good Aristotelians, we remember at the beginning of the ethics that Aristotle basically saying, if you think studying this is going to make you good, go away. Right. It's it. <laughs> yeah. This study mastering moral theory will probably make you worse unless you attend to the practices and the development of the right kind of habits that are completely separate from theory. They can be perhaps illumined by theory. But the real danger, as Jen, as you just very nicely put it, and what we have to be very concerned about in our classes is the danger of substituting theory for practice mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. habit. Right. And yeah. I think that's one of the points that I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the points Dostoevsky's making at the end about Raskolnikov in place of dialectic that is theoretical moral philosophy or theoretical amoral philosophy, as the case may be. He now has life. Right. He now has yeah. the potential of certain kinds of practices where he'll imitate the ways of Sonia and imitate the ways of of the characters in Scripture, the individuals in Scripture who come to live a certain kind of life that leads them closer to Christ and their own redemption. And that's not adopting a detached theoretical abstract standpoint and trying to figure it all out in advance before you act. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I also think it kind of touches on, for me anyway, why 
reading literature is actually very important for the moral philosopher in particular, because I think that if you're, if you're doing moral theory, you can tend to get lost in various abstractions and become detached from reality in ways that are clearly kind of disturbing. And I think that a lot of philosophers, you know, are, are just operating at a level at, that allows them to say things that in practice are obviously absurd and that this is bad. <laughs> and that one of the things that the novelist does is, is, is to kind of reveal these absurdities. I mean, I think of an, a, a, a contemporary example is Christopher Beja's latest novel. I don't know if you've read it, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts. Yeah, it's really great. I highly recommend it. But basically that novel is just showing what it would be like if you lived according to decision theory. <laughs> and like, obviously it's ridiculous and horrible. <laughs> And, but it's a very clever, funny, deeply moving, I think in various ways books, but it really is just like a send up of this kind of Nate Silver approach to life. You know, this idea that with, with great Bayesian technique, you could just be completely rational and that, that that's how you would solve like the crisis of yourself. And, and of course it's not, but like, the thing is, if you're just actually like, arguing with these decision theoretic people, you don't really get anywhere, right? But if you can like point to a life and be like, where did he go wrong? <laughs> you know, like, it's somehow, it's just somehow much more effective, I think, than anything that the philosopher can, can manage to do. And, so. and you're right, a, a corrective, especially to certain types of modern moral philosophy. Yes. Yes. Well, I think we're in agreement that modern moral philosophy is not super awesome. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. Well, this was very fun and very illuminating. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. It's, it's been great. And uh, I'll now have a lot more to talk about when I start teaching this book in just a couple of weeks. So uh, uh, very glad to be with you, Jan. Uh, great work you do in philosophy, and particularly in your own work in philosophy is fabulous, but also the work you're doing to give a kind of public face to philosophy that's not a dumbing down of the really important questions, but as a way of engaging these questions such that we can bring really smart people who might not be technically trained in, in philosophy into significant reflection about who we are as human beings and who we are as believers. And so I'm, I and many others are really grateful for your leadership on this and for the work you're doing. So keep it up. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly supporter. And also, please don't forget to give us a positive review on iTunes or to tell your friends and family that they should definitely check us out. 
For our next episode, I will be joined by fiction writer and editor of Harper's Magazine, Christopher Beha, to discuss Henrik Pondapadin's novel, Lucky Pair. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.